Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bookish Babbles, the podcast where we reread our favorite books and chat about them. I'm your host, Allison, and without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to episode 9 of Bookish Babbles. Today we are talking about chapters 27 to 29 of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. Guys, we are almost done with this book. Um, After this, it's just chapter 30 and the epilogue. Like, I seriously can't believe um, we're here already. I I will do a sort of like wrap-up slash theories episode for Ballad, and I do plan on having a special guest, so be on the lookout for that. Um, you'll have to wait and see who it is. But yeah, then after that, we'll be reading The Hunger Games. We'll be diving into the trilogy. So I'm really excited for that. But then again, I will miss um, talking about ballads. So I will be enjoying these next few weeks while I can. Uh, though it will feel nice to get out of uh, Coriolanus's head. Because as much as I love this book and the other characters in it, being in his head is a lot. Also, it's been 10 years since the movie came out, um, March 23rd, so happy belated um, 10-year anniversary to everyone. Woo! (laughs) Yeah, so I was in 8th grade when that movie came out, and I can't believe that was 10 years ago. Um, 2012 was also the year that the first Avengers movie came out, and when the last Twilight movie came out, so it was a big year for me. And I was able to see the first uh, Hunger Games movie in theaters opening weekend. I went with my group of girlfriends, and I think we did go on, like, the Friday night of opening weekend. Yeah. So, one of my friends that I went with was Lily, who is the one who wrote the the, the music for this podcast, and she was the first ever guest I had. She and I did the makeup of makeup book tag together so if you haven't listened to that episode please go do that we had so much fun recording that episode um we even chatted a little bit about seeing the hunger games um all of us got ready at another friend's house um one of the moms was like braiding all of our hair to look like uh, katniss's and i believe we all had mocking j pins too so it was just a really special night um eventually i do plan on doing an episode talking about the movie and some of my memories of seeing it for the first time but that won't be for a while because I plan on doing that after we read through the first Hunger Games book. Anyway I just wanted to give a special shout out because 10 years is a big deal. So with all that being said we should probably um dive into the episode. So last week uh, Coriolanus and Lucy Gray officially reunite in a meadow. Uh, Lucy Gray starts writing a new song called The Hanging Tree very familiar to all of us. Uh, Billy Tope continues to be an asshole. And Sejanus disappears during the Covey's next show. Uh, this week, Coriolanus, Sejanus, and the Covey go on a pleasant lake trip. A murder most foul happens. Another hanging takes place, which is more devastating than the last. Uh, Coriolanus betrays a friend. And our two lovebirds plan to run away together. Yeah, things escalate real quick, but uh, at least we get more songs. (laughs) So with all that being said, let's dive into chapter 27. So this chapter picks up right where the last one ended with them being at the Covey show and... Uh, Sejanus is suddenly not there, so it opens with Coriolanus looking around trying to find him, and he's also a little drunk from the white liquor, so he's not having the easiest time doing that. As uh, Maud Ivory and Lucy Gray uh, finish the song and everyone's applauding, he gets up to go look for Sejanus, but just as he does, Sejanus returns to his seat, claiming that he had to, you know, relieve himself since the white liquor ran right through him. Coriolanus knows he's lying since white liquor, um, doesn't run through anybody so he resolves to keep an eye on Sejanus for the rest of the night and the next morning uh Coriolanus is quite hungover he has a throbbing headache and threw up the white liquor so more evidence to him that Sejanus was lying last night about having too much to drink since he's showing none of the same symptoms that Coriolanus is having while Corio can only like nibble on a piece of toast, Sejanus is able to eat both of their helpings for breakfast. Uh, 
So, to keep him out of trouble, uh, Coriolanus invites Sejanus to come out to the lake with him in the covey, and Sejanus happily says yes. As they walk to the covey's house, Coriolanus tries to think of a way to confront Sejanus about his activities, but the only real evidence that he has is, you know, the money that he found in Sejanus's locker, and it's not really enough evidence to confront him, plus the money could have, you know, just easily come from Mr. Plinth, who gave it to his son as he was leaving. Uh, Lucy Gray greets them at the back door of her house and gives them each a glass of cold water to help to hold them over till they get to the lake. It's about a two to three hour hike after all, but she promises it'll be worth the trip. Uh, Barbajer is the only one who stays behind to keep an eye on things, though Lucy Gray t- tells them that the reason Barb wants to stay back is because she's seeing a gal down the road, so the two of them will be happy to have the place to themselves for the day, so official queer rep in the Hunger Games books. Yay! <laughs> Um, so they all walk in a straight line through the woods, uh, Tam Amber leading up front and Lucy Gray and Coriolanus in the back. Uh, Coriolanus is naturally very uncomfortable in the woods with District 12 out of sight, especially with no weapon to fight off any creature, you know, that may be lurking. So he picks up a large branch pretending he needs a walking stick. Um, no one else is concerned like he is. According to Lucy Gray, the lake is like their second home. Uh, Maud Ivory's feet hurt due to the blisters that her uh, that her shoes gave her, so Sejanus offers to give her a piggyback ride and she sings while being carried. I love Maud Ivory, she's so cute. Um, unfortunately for Corio, this also means that the Mockingjays pick up on Maud Ivory's song, and we all know they annoy him. Um, so it's then when Maud Ivory asked um, Corio what he thought of the song she sang last night. So... Like an English student who didn't uh, do the assigned reading, uh, Coriolanus tries to dodge the question by saying he liked it, telling and you know telling her she was fantastic. But Maud Ivory doesn't leave it at that. She asked if he thinks that if that in the poem, if the people really do see the ghost of Lucy Gray or if they're dreaming it. Um, she thinks that people really do see Lucy Gray and that she flies to avoid people since she thinks they'll kill her because she's different. Uh, the group continues to debate the meaning of the poem. Uh, Clerk Carmine thinks that the little girl is dead and no one found her body because she fell off a bridge and it's a long way down. Uh, Maud Ivory isn't convinced, so she asked um, our Lucy Gray in this book uh, the meaning of the poem. And Lucy Gray answers by saying, It's a mystery, sweetheart, just like me. That's why it's my song. And quick side note, I think that this line alone really just sums up her character. Um... Slight spoiler for the end of the book, but this is a re- a reread podcast, and I think most people listening will have already read the book and know what happens. Uh, but Lucy Gray is a mystery. Um, we don't know what happens to her at the end of the book, just like the little girl in the poem she's named after. And no, one a common complaint that I often hear about Ballad is that it should have had you know dual P- uh, POV. Um, when it was announced that the book was written in third person, you know, many people were speculating that the story would be dual POV, uh, one from Coriolanus, obviously, and then the other from the District 12 girl. Now, while I do want to hear the story from Lucy Gray's perspective, and after all, she is my favorite character, I do think that Suzanne made the right choice in not giving us her perspective, because, um, Lucy Gray is supposed to be a mystery, and we have... And, you know, had we had the chance to read from her thoughts directly, it would have taken the mystery away a bit, I think. Because um, us not getting her perspective help, kind of helps with the mystery. Like, liter- and literally everyone has, like, a slightly different take on the character, especially uh, toward the end of the book. Uh, it can sometimes be hard to know when she's being genuine, because um, she's a really good performer and can play whatever role she needs to be in order to survive or take care of her family. And many people have different opinions of of her and, you know, if she really did have genuine feelings for Corio. Um, but this is what makes her a, re- a really fascinating character to me. Everyone can have a different take on her. So um, when the movie comes out, it'll be really interesting to see how they portray Lucy Gray. And it's really, a, I think a lot of it will depend on the actress that, that they choose to play her and that the direction she's giving. And I can't wait. Okay, back to the story. (laughs) So, they get to the lake and almost immediately jump in the water and start swimming. 
Corio actually seems to be having a good time, you know, swimming around, except when he starts to worry about what could be swimming around at the bottom of the lake and then, you know, swims back to shore, which is a relatable feeling. Um, I'm, I'm always slightly paranoid, you know, if I'm swimming in the ocean, if there's are sharks nearby or whatever. Um, Tam Amber uh, makes fishing poles, Clerk Carmine digs for worms, Maud Ivory and Sejanus pick berries. Uh, Lucy Gray warns them to stay away from the patch near the rocks since um, snakes like it there. And Maud Ivory comments that Lucy Gray always knows where to find snakes. And this leaves uh, Cory Lannis and Lucy Gray alone to collect firewood. And overall, Corio is enjoying uh, the time out in the woods. And then the two of them have a really important um, conversation starting on page um, 434. And I'm going to read it out loud because it pulls like... I feel like it pulls the cracks in their relationship wide open. Okay, so it starts with um, Lucy Gray saying, Listen, I'm sorry if I upset you last night. I wasn't laying my daddy's death on you. We were both just kids when that happened. I know. I'm sorry if I overreacted. It's just, I can't pretend I'm someone I'm not. I don't agree with everything the Capitol does, but I am Capitol. And on the whole, I think we're right about needing order, said Coriolanus. The Covey believe you're put on earth to reduce the misery, not add to it. Do you think the Hunger Games are right, she asked. I'm not even sure why we do them, to be honest. But I do think people are forgetting the war too fast. What we did to each other, what we're capable of, district and capital both. I know the capital must seem hard-lined out here, but we're just trying to keep things under control. Otherwise, there'd be chaos and people running around killing each other, like in the arena. This this was the first time he had tried to put these thoughts into words with anyone other than Dr. Gall. He felt a little unsteady, like a toddler learning to walk, but he felt the independence of getting on his feet as well. Lucy Gray drew back a bit. That's what you think people would do? I do, unless there's law and someone enforcing it. I think we might as well be animals, he said with more assurance. Like it or not, the capital's the only thing keeping everyone safe. Hmm, so they keep me safe. And what do I give up for that? She asked. Coriolanus poked at the fire with a stick. Give up? Why nothing? The covey did, she said. Can't travel, can't perform without their say-so, can only sing certain types of songs. Fight getting round up and you get shot like, and you get shot dead like my daddy. Try to keep your family together and you get your head broken like my mama. What if I think that price is too high to pay? Maybe my freedom is worth the risk. So your family were rebels after all. Coriolanus wasn't really surprised. My family were Covey, first and last, Lucy Gray asserted. Not district, not capital, not rebel, not peacekeeper, just us. And you're like us. You want to think for yourself. You push back, I know, because of what you did for me in the games. Well, she had him there. If the Hunger Games were were thought necessary by the Capitol, and if he had tried to thwart them, had he not refuted the Capitol's authority, pushed back, as she said, not like Sejanus in outright defiance, but in a quieter, subtler way of his own? Here's what I believe. If the Capitol wasn't in charge, we wouldn't even be having this conversation, because we'd have destroyed ourselves by now. People have been around for a long time without the Capitol. I expect they'll be here a long time after she concluded Coriolanus thought of the dead cities he'd passed on the journey to district 12 she claimed the covey had traveled so she must have seen them as well not many of them panem used to be magnificent look at it now so right so this is like one of my favorite conversations in the whole book and i think one of the most important ones as well because right here it's really um spelled out why in the long run like they lucy gray and corio can't work as a couple because their values are just too different like while i i I do believe they that they do have like strong affection toward each other but ultimately it's not enough for them to go the distance also um she denies it but i'm like 99 percent sure that um corio being a peacekeeper does really bother her Because, like, on, like, an intellectual level, Lucy Gray knows that him being a peacekeeper wasn't his choice, and it even gave them a shot at building a life together, given the circumstances that they're in. 
But him being a peacekeeper, I believe, will always subconsciously bother her because I think it. I think it's safe to assume that it was uh, peacekeepers who killed her parents. So she's inevitably going to be reminded of that. And again, I feel like a broken record saying this, but Coriolanus loves control. Even when um, he has little moments of subtly doing something for himself that the Capitol wouldn't approve, wouldn't approve of, like you know, putting. Uh, Lucy, the napkin Lucy Grace sent in the snake tank. Um, ultimately, he wants the capital to stick around because not being in power and not being um, part of the group that's on top really scares him, which makes sense for his character given the fact that he was a very young child when there was a whole war going on around him. But, you know. A- anyway, they're interrupted um, by Clerk Carmine, so the conversation ends there. Um, he shows uh, Lucy Gray um, that uh, that he had up the plant that he got from the lake, which has pointy leaves and small white flowers, and the plant is called Katniss. Hint, hint, wink, wink from Suzanne. <laughs> Can't imagine why she would put that in there. Um, also, another name is Swamp Potatoes. <laughs> oh, boy. Just imagine that. Like, you thought... Like, you're named after a plant and it's called Swamp Potatoes. But anyway, um, Tam Amber brings over uh, the fish he caught and they cook it for lunch. And after they eat, we learn from Maud Ivory that everyone in the covey is named after a ballad and, you know, their second name is always a color. And Lucy Gray uh, tells Maud Ivory to take a nap before they head home and she sings her a lullaby to get her to fall asleep and which lullaby is it the meadow song yes the same one from the trilogy and of course i'll be linking some covers down in the show notes so i know we all want to see like uh, president snow's reaction to katniss singing the hanging tree but i personally really want his reaction to her singing um the meadow song to rue in the 74th games because i think it would make an amazing um post-credit scene for the movie and donald sutherland would crush that scene because um i believe that when katniss sings that song as rue is dying and then gives her a proper send-off with the flowers i believe that's the moment like snow started to compare katniss to lucy gray and to start really seeing the threat that katniss could pose because to me, Maud Ivory is a sort of cross between um, Rue and Prim. So Katniss singing this lullaby to Rue as she's dying is almost like is almost like visually parallel to Lucy Gray singing it to Maud Ivory, who's you know only taking a nap at this moment. But because you know she isn't dying like Rue is. Um, but either way, that would definitely trigger Snow because even. If at that moment he doesn't think Katniss will become the symbol of the rebellion, he definitely feels like, um, you know, the ghost of Lucy Gray has come back to haunt him. And that's why I want that to be a post credit scene. It would be amazing. But anyway, uh, Lucy Gray finishes the song. Um, Coriolanus starts to doze off, but then um, Mockingjay starts singing. So naturally he can't relax now. Um, he's even more offended when he realizes there aren't any Jabberjays in sight, and he realizes the Mockingjays must be starting to reproduce, and it disturbs him that the capital birds are now out of the equation. Um, Maud Ivory falls asleep, uh, curled up next to Lucy Gray. Uh, Coriolanus stays with them while everyone else goes swimming again. Uh, Clerk Carmine leaves a blue feather for Maud Ivory, but tells them not to tell her where it came from. Uh, Lucy Gray tells Corio that, you know, Clerk's been having a hard time since he misses Billy, and Clerk Carmine is another character that I've really overlooked, like, the past few times I've read the book, but seriously, poor kid. Um, throughout the book, we do see him snap at Maud Ivory a few times, which makes sense since she's obviously, like, very protective of Lucy Gray and constantly says bad things about Billy, and, uh, while Clerk Carmine might agree with her, it's, it's still probably really hard for him to hear those things since Billy is still his his brother. And remember, he's only 12, so it makes sense that he and Maud Ivory are butting heads. But he does still love Maud Ivory, clearly, so he's making progress. Uh, Coriolanus asks Lucy Gray about the line from her ballad about, you know, Lucy Gray being the bet that Billy lost in the reaping. 
And it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Billy thought he could be with both um, Mayfair and Lucy Gray. Then they found out about each other. And Mayfair gets her dad to rig the reaping. Um, though Lucy Gray has no idea what Mayfair said to her dad to do that. Since um, he never approved of his daughter being in a relationship with Billy. And as Lucy Gray says, they're quote unquote outsider. So it's easy to lie about us. Now, Lucy Gray thinks it kind of makes sense uh, that Billy and Mayfair are together because, according to her, uh, Billy um, says he's fine on his own, but he really wants someone to take care of him. So, basically, he wants a girl to mother him because he has issues. Uh, Mayfair comes from a rich family like by District 12 standards, so it makes sense that for her to be like a candidate in that regard for him. And... As for Mayfair, like, you know, she does, she has to be pretty lonely since, um, all the miners hate her family and she has no friends, so I do kind of feel bad for her in that regard, but still no excuse for, you know, purposely sending someone into the Hunger Games. Uh, Coriolanus then asked her if Billy tried to get back together with her, uh, and yes, Billy had come to see Lucy Gray recently in the meadow and went on about, you know, big plans and how he wants her to run away with him to meet up at the hanging tree. Um, turns out the hanging tree was their spot since most people don't like to go there. So it's one of the few places in District 12 where you're guaranteed some privacy. And Lucy Gray says Billy wants to run away up north since he's heard rumors of people still living up there, but she can't trust him. So it doesn't matter. And just like that... Coriolanus is feeling jealous again. <laughs> On page um, 440, it says, Coriolanus uh, felt jealousy tight in his throat. He thought she'd pushed uh, Billy, she'd banished Billy Tope. And here she was casually telling him about some chance meeting in the meadow. Only it hadn't been chance. He'd known where to find her. Has it even been a month since she and Billy broke up? I'm not sure. Um, that, with the fact, that Lucy Gray and Billy have known each other for years and the, thus have a lot of history. Um, it's going to take her some time to get over it, Corio. Um, then they have an, an important conversation about trust at the top of page uh, 441. So I'm going to read that and the passage that follows. Alright, so it starts with uh, Corio saying, Trust is important. Then Lucy Gray goes on to say, I think it's more important than love. I mean, I love all kinds of things I don't trust. Thunderstorms, white liquor, snakes. Sometimes I think I love them because I can't trust them. And how mixed up is that? Lucy Gray took a deep breath. I trust you, though. He sensed this was a difficult admission for her to make, perhaps harder than a declaration of love, but it didn't erase the image of Billy Tope wooing her in the meadow. Why? Why? Well, I'd have to give... That one's some thought. When she kissed him, he kissed her back, but without so much conviction. These new developments upset him. Maybe it was a mistake to be getting so attached to her. And something else bothered him, too. It was the song she'd been playing in the meadow that first day, about the hanging. He thought, th he thought then, but it had mentioned meeting up at the hanging tree as well. If that was their old place, why was she still singing about it? Maybe she was only using him to get Billy Tope back. Maybe the two, playing the two of them off each other. So is it just me or is Corio being annoyingly insecure at this moment? Because personally, I do think that Lucy Gray is genuine about the fact that she doesn't want anything to do with Billy anymore. And she still has, you know, a lot of complicated emotions to work through. But, you know, she didn't survive the Hunger Games just to come back and do the same bullshit with Billy. Uh, Corio, you're the one who helped keep her alive in the arena, the reason she was able to go home, whereas Billy is the reason she almost died in the first place. So, your jealousy makes no sense. Get over yourself. She may trust you, but you certainly don't trust her. Alright, so Maud Ivory wakes up from her nap and they all start heading home. Tam Amber leads them in a slightly different uh, direction so that they can pass by berry patches. Uh, Clerk Carmine even finds an apple tree. When they get back to the house, Tam Amber takes uh, Maud Ivory to the hob to trade berries for shoes, and Sejanus um, went off there too without telling Corio. 
So naturally, Coriolanus has to go find him now. He says goodbye to Lucy Gray, promises to see her on Saturday, and then takes off. He finds uh, Sejanus at the far side of the hob talking to a woman. Uh, she's showing Sejanus a variety of weapons like, you know, picks, axes, knives. And it's at that moment that Coriolanus realizes that Sejanus can um, use his secret stash of cash to buy uh, bigger weapons like guns. He approaches and Sejanus covers himself by saying he's thinking of buying a pocket knife, you know, quote unquote, once they get paid. Um, but we all know that he could, you know, buy it right now. Um, as they walk back uh, toward the base, uh, Coriolanus suppresses the urge to smack Sejanus, um, instead decides to emotionally manipulate him. Uh, he goes on this whole spiel about how Sejanus is like a brother to him and he cares about him and if he needs anything to come to him, blah blah blah. And Sejanus gets emotional. He tells uh, Coriolanus thank you and how he's the only one who can really trust and Sejanus is being so genuine in this moment, like he 100% believes that Coriolanus is his friend and as, so, as someone who's put their trust in the wrong people before, this whole scene hurts to read and and it will hurt to watch on screen. Uh, so, so the conversation ends with uh, Coriolanus hugging Sejanus and trying to get him to promise not to do, do anything stupid and they go on with their week. Uh, to Coriolanus's relief, their busy schedule means that Sejanus is pretty much under constant supervision. On Monday afternoon, they check on the traps, and still not a single Mockingjay has wandered into one, which again really amuses me. Uh, even Dr. K is amused by this. Um, so the next day, they get out the nets to start catching Mockingjays. And the nets are nearly invisible, so it makes it easier to catch the birds. Uh, Dr. K gives them strict instructions uh, never to leave the nets unsupervised and that the birds need to be removed from the nets as quickly as possible so the experience is trauma-free as possible. And it's interesting that Dr. K is so worried about um, making sure that the birds are treated as humanely as possible. But from what I've seen, she doesn't care about treating the Avoxes, you know, the actual human beings the same way. So just something to think about and i'm gonna read this passage on page uh, 444 because it made me laugh when given the go-ahead a bug proved to be an, to be a natural gently untangling his mockingjay and placing it in the waiting cage coriolanus's bird uh, began a tortured screaming the minute he touched it and when he gave it a squeeze designed to dissuade it it drove its beak into his palm he reflexively dropped it and in and in moments it had vanished into the foliage. That bird is the best judge of character in the entire series. <laughs> Case closed. So when they get uh, back, he still has to go clean cages in the hangar. And as I've said before, uh, Coriolanus has no problem with the Jabberjays. He even has um, fun playing with them. Um, one of the scientists let him have a remote, so he and he has them, you know, record random phrases and stuff for fun. Uh, though he stops singing when the mo Mockingjays start copying him. And I'm going to read the short paragraph at the bottom of page of 445 because I think it's an important insight into him. On the whole, he was beginning to wary of the infusion of music in his life. Invasion might be a better word. It seemed to be everywhere these days. Bird song, covey song, bird and covey song. Perhaps he did not share his mother's love of music after all. At least such a quantity of it. It consumed his attention greedily, demanding to be listened to, and, and made it hard to think. Maybe I'm biased because I'm obviously someone who's really into art and music and, you know, values creativity. I'm a Ravenclaw, after all. Um, but someone who looks down on the arts is a pretty big red flag to me. And, and again, another reason why he and Lucy Gray won't be able to work in the long term. Like, I do wonder, though, if part of the reason uh, Coriolanus is drawn to Lucy Gray at first is because she's so clearly connected to music, which subconsciously reminds him of, of his mother, who is the only person you could maybe argue that Coriolanus actually loved. But that's getting into a whole side of, like, psychology I'm not qualified to talk about, so we're going to move on. Uh, by Wednesday, they have the 50 Mockingjays that Dr. K originally wa wanted to catch, and after dinner, Coriolanus and Bug um, 
get the birds ready to be brought to the capital the next day. Uh, Sejanus then show, shows up and shows them another package of goodies from Mrs. Plinth. And when uh, Bug goes off, Sejanus gets real serious, real fast, and tells Coriolanus that he has something really important to tell him. And I'm going to start reading um, toward the bottom of page 446 and then to the end of this chapter. This was it then, the confession, Coriolanus's entreaties for sanity and caution had been weighed and found insufficient. Misguided passion had won the day. Now was the time for the pieces to be explained. The money, the guns, the base map. The moment the whole uh, treasonous rebel plot would be revealed. Once Coriolanus heard it, he'd be as good as a rebel himself, a traitor to the capital. He should panic, or run, or at least try to shut Sejanus up. But he did none of those things. Instead, his hands acted on their own. Like the time he'd dropped the handkerchief into the tank of snakes before he'd been aware of deciding to do it. Now his left hand adjusted the cover of the Jabberjay cage while his right, concealed from Sejanus's view by his body, dropped to the counter where a remote sat. Coriolanus pressed record and the Jabberjay fell silent. And this is when everything starts to truly go wrong. And to think literally earlier in this chapter, we were hanging out by a lake, having a good time. Anyway, it's time for a break. When we get back, um, we'll talk about what Sejanus tells Corio. Hey guys, it's Allison from Another Point in Time. And it is time for another random recommendations in which I randomly recommend you a book to read. So first book I'm going to recommend today is kind of a pop, a popular one. No, no, it was pretty popular when it came out originally, but so far I haven't really heard anyone talk about it, at least not on Book Talk. And that is a Geekerella by Ashley Poston, and it's exactly what it sounds like a uh, another um, Cinderella retelling. But this is one of my favorite like book Cinderella retelling. So I'll read you the description. Anything can happen once upon a con. When geek girl Elle Whitmer uh, sees a cosplay contest, a co cosplay contest, try saying that five times fast, uh, sponsored by the producers of Starfield, she has to enter. First prize is an invitation to Excelsicon cosplay ball and a meet and greet with the actors slated to play uh, Fre Frederadian Prince uh, Carmendor in the reboot. Elle's been scra scraping together tips from her gig at the Magic Pumpkin food truck. Yep, Cinderella Magic Pumpkin, what do you know? Um, behind her stepmother's back. And winning this contest could be her ticket out once and for all. Not to mention a fangirl's dream come true. Teen actor Darian Freeman is less than thrilled about this year's con. He used to live for conventions, but now they're nothing but jaw-aching photo sessions and awkward meet and greets. Playing Federation, Prince Carpenter is all he's ever wanted, but the die-hard Starfield fandom has already dismissed him as just another heartthrob. As the con draws near, closet nerd Darian feels more and more like a fake until he meets a girl who shows him otherwise. Part romance, part love letter to nerd culture, and all totally adorbs, Geekerella is a fairy tale for anyone who believes in the magic of fandom. So yeah, if you're a sucker for like fairy tale retellings and you love and you love fandom, this is the perfect book. And it's actually the first in a um like kind of companion series. Like each book uh, focuses on a different characters. So technically, they all work as standalones. But I personally recommend reading them in publication order. And Geekerella is the first one and my personal favorite one in the series. But yeah, uh, Geekerella by Ashley Poston. Highly recommend it. Uh, back to the show. Okay, we're back. I am not ready to talk about everything that's going to happen. Uh, spoiler alert, I will be in emotional pain by the end of this chapter. Anyway, so, uh, where we left off, Sejanus is about to make a major confession to Coriolanus. Big mistake, uh, because right before he does, Coriolanus hits rec the record button on the Jabberjay right behind him. 
It's also notable that the whole time he's recording uh, Sejanus, Coriolanus doesn't speak once because he doesn't want to incriminate himself. So here's what we learn. Um, so Sejanus tells them that some of the rebels are getting ready to leave uh, District 12. They said Sejanus can come with them if he helps them rescue Lil. Remember the girl who was arrested at the hang- at the hanging? Um, uh, Sejanus plans um, to drug the guards on shift using um, the baked goods from his mom. He'll force them into the interrogation room and lock them in. And the room's soundproof so no one will hear them. Um, he'll get, uh, Lil and her brother to help, to help them through the fence. No, wait, uh, yeah, Lil's brother will help them, um, get through the fence. And then they'll head north. Um, so Janus tells Coriolanus that he couldn't leave, uh, without telling him. And, you know, once he's free, he'll figure out a way to let his parents know he's okay and that the plinth name lives on. And as soon as Janus says his last name, Coriolanus switches the Jabberjay back to neutral since... He's now properly incriminated himself. And good timing too because a bug comes back now to get a water bottle since his broke. Okay, so when the two of them are alone again in a moment later, um, Coriolanus expresses his doubts uh, to Sejanus about the plan and running away. Uh, Sejanus doesn't really care because he knows sooner or later he'll do something reckless that could get him arrested and he'd rather try to escape now when he thinks he has a a real chance to do so plus he doesn't want to potentially keep getting um Coriolanus in danger with his antics so you see Corio this is what being a concerned friend is and Coriolanus continues to doubt Sejanus and and you know his and the rebels ability to survive and sure that he's sure that they won't survive the winter but Sejanus is acting confident probably mostly out of desperation to get away. But after Sejanus leaves, uh, Coriolanus does consider erasing the recording, but ultimately decides not to. He hopes that uh, Gaul will find the recording, and, you know, when the Jabberjay arrives at the Citadel, she'll know what to do. And, you know, the most likely outcome is that Sejanus will be discharged and Mr. Plinth will swoop in and take his son home and force him to work an office job in the capital, where he'll be miserable but alive. If only things could work out. So that night, uh, Coriolanus has a nightmare. In his dream, he's back in the arena. He's in the stands. Um, Sejanus is kneeling over Marcus's body and doesn't notice the snakes coming at him. Uh, Coriolanus wakes up and starts panicking since he's realizing that Sejanus could be in serious trouble if the recording is discovered. Yeah, no shit, you're only coming to that conclusion now. Uh, But reassures himself that the chances of anyone even pressing play on the Jabberjay is very small, so likely Gaul won't hear it. So now he's back to panicking about the fact that he knows there's a rebel plan to rescue Lil. So toward the bottom of page at 452, it said, um, it says, um, he was back to square one and in great danger for knowing about the rebel plan. Lil's rescue, the escape, even the weak spot in the fence behind the generator weighed on him. That chink in the capital armor, the whole idea of the rebels having secret access to the base, it frightened and infuriated him. This breaking of the contract, this invitation to chaos and all that could follow. Didn't these people understand that the whole system would collapse without the capital? That they all might as well run away to the north and live like animals because that's what they'd be reduced to? Again, he has a very low opinion about humanity, which is kind of gross. And, you know, he just continues to spiral. So, on Friday, he gets a letter from Tigris that doesn't help matters. Um, potential buyers are looking at the Snow apartment. Uh, they got in two offers so far, but it's they're below the amount that they would need to move to even the most modest apartment Tigris has looked at. Uh, the grandmam is in denial about the whole thing and hides in her rose garden. And it didn't help, um... When she overheard a couple talking about how they could turn the roof garden into a goldfish pond. Uh, as the group gets ready to go out on Saturday, a Bug, Smiley, and Beanpole decide that they don't want to be hungover the next day. So they skip the white liquor and just get apple cider. Which I think is a good choice. Apple cider is delicious. About an hour um, into the show, Coriolanus feels um, Sejanus slips away. 
feels Sejanus slip away, counts to ten, and then follows him. As he leaves, he hears Lucy Gray and the Covey play a downbeat song, and this is Sell You for a Song, which is basically the Covey saying um, F you to Billy, and covers will be linked down in the show notes. And this really annoys Coriolanus because, you know, why can't Lucy Gray write a song about him and not Billy? Because, you know, how dare she channel her emotions through her art? Also, um, heartbreak is complicated and there's usually layers to it. And I don't think one song can ever fully capture all the feelings and, you know, history you have with a person. So leave her alone, Corio. If anything, she deals with her emotions in a much healthier way than you do. Anyway, Coriolanus uh, follows Sejanus and sees him go inside the shed. He sees um, the woman from the hob leave with a wad of cash, so we can only assume that she got it from Sejanus. Uh, when Coriolanus peeks inside, he sees Sejanus and Billy uh, crouch over a sack that has um, several weapons. And suddenly, Coriolanus feels the barrel of a gun pointed at him. And at the same time, Lucy Gray comes over to him, unaware of the danger at first, and then the gunman directs them inside the shed. Uh, by the way, the, gu- the gunman is named Spruce, and he's uh, Lil's brother. So Janus immediately covers for them, saying that, you know, they're both with him. Bill even claims that Lucy Gray is his girl, and will be going north with them. Uh, Lucy Gray plays along to keep her and Coriolanus alive, though it still annoys Corio that... They had to play along like that in the first place. Like, dude, priorities. Um, while they're ta- And while they're talking, a new voice jo- joins in and, uh-oh, it's Mayfair, here to ruin everyone's night, as usual. Uh, Billy says Mayfair won't talk and you are lying to yourself, dude. Uh, Spruce knows this and so he aims his gun at Mayfair. Billy knocks it out of his hand. Coriolanus then picks up one of the rifles and shoots Mayfair uh, he hits her and she drops dead. Uh, Lucy Gray starts shaking like she did when Arachne was killed and Coriolanus tells her to get back on stage and, you know, that's her alibi. Then Billy just really shows what a stand-up guy he is by saying, If I swing, she's swinging with me. So Spruce shoots him in the chest, killing him. Thank you, Spruce. Uh, because, what the fudge, Bill? Billy, he, like, he is so selfish and messed up. Like, he claims to love Lucy Gray, but, you know, won't let her live if he doesn't get to live. Like, yeah, that's not love. So, Lucy Gray looks like she's in shock, but manages to get back on stage just as, uh, Maud Ivory finishes, um, leading a sing-along, so she isn't missed. Uh, Spruce leaves and then, you know, takes the murder weapons with him. When uh, Sejanus and Coriolanus get back to their seats, uh, no one seems to have missed them. Uh, Beanpole blacked out. Smiley is uh, talking to a girl and Bug is still working on the whiskey. Uh, Lucy Gray keeps the whole covey on stage for as long as possible since um, you know one of them will be the ones who discover the bodies and keeping them on stage for a long time will strengthen the alibi. All five of them stay on stage for the rest of the program and Maud I- and... Uh, and Maud Ivory, unfortunately, is the one who finds the bodies as the crowd leaves for the night. Um, Coriolanus and Sejanus make a plan. They will obviously claim to know nothing and stay on base the next day, pretending to be hungover. And that night, Coriolanus uh, justifies the murder in his mind, because even though the law won't agree with with that or see it that way, um, he sees it as self-defense. Um he sees it as that way because uh, Mayfair had the power to to get him hanged in that moment because from her perspective, it looked like he was, you know, conspiring with the rebels. Uh, Coriolanus also notes that he had an easier time uh, killing Mayfair than Bobbin and wonders if it's easier since it wasn't hit the first kill and thinks, you know, it'll be easier with each one. And maybe that's borderline soci- sociopathic behavior, but I'm not qualified to give that answer. But I do think it's definitely easier for him to detach himself from the murder since, you know, he didn't stab Mayfair like he did with Bobbin and he didn't actually watch her die right in front of his face. Because, like, I don't know, stabbing someone seems like a very intimate thing, whereas, like, you know, when you shoot someone from a distance, you don't 
feel the weapon go into them. And this is probably how uh, Coriolanus is able to continuously poison people in the future because he doesn't directly stab them and maybe doesn't even always see them die because, you know, he makes sure to poison his victim's drink or whatever. Then the next day they're sick and when he hears about it, he's like, oh no, so he doesn't see it happen. And eventually killing people just becomes like another Tuesday to him. So uh, the next morning, everyone makes it to breakfast, uh, even the hungover bunkmates. Uh, Smiley spills the tea that he got from his reliable nurse friend um, that the mayor's daughter and a local musician have been shot dead during the show, and they're pretty sure it was a peacekeeper's rifle, likely a stolen one, and likely two um, shooters since the guy was killed uh, by a shotgun used for hunting. Uh, side note, I think it's really impressive that you know you can tell what kind of weapon someone was shot by. Uh, recently I've been getting into like true crime and I'm currently a binge listening to the podcast uh, Murder with My Husband and every time a body is found like the people doing uh, the autopsy they can tell like what kind of gun the person was killed with and I mean I can barely tell the difference between a rifle and a handheld gun so this is like seriously really impressive. Anyway um Smiley confirms that Maud Ivory was the one who found the bodies which really had to suck like you know poor kid she's been through enough and it also really had to be hard for lucy gray because um i'm sure maude ivory was the last person she wanted to find the bodies apart apart from clerk carmine because you know that's his brother uh but i'm sure that lucy gray like wanted to figure out a way to make sure maude ivory didn't find the bodies but you know couldn't do that without raising suspicions like um Lucy Gray already has some pretty bad PTSD from the games and survivor's guilt, especially, you know, after watching Jessup die, but now she just feels, like, ten times worse. Um, I mean, the good news is that Lucy Gray's alibi works. Uh, the Covey was questioned, of course, but everyone agrees that since, um, they were on stage the whole time, there's no way they could have had anything to do with the murders. Um, so far, the investigation is off do a good start though Coriolanus is worried about Lucy Grace and she does have the motive to kill both Billy and Mayfair and kind of worried about himself since um because of the history of him and Lucy Gray and the games are brought up people could figure out like who he is and their relationship and the two of them would have motive to kill Mayfair as a form of revenge since you know she's the reason Lucy Gray went into the games in the first place um, all day Sunday, the base is on lockdown, but it's over by Monday. Uh, Sejanus isn't sure what's going to happen with the rescue plan. It was originally scheduled for the commander's birthday that's coming up. And the rumor going around is that the murder was the result of rebel infighting, so it covers Coriolanus and Sejanus. Um, Mayor throws a huge fit uh, to the commander, but the general consensus is that the mayor has no one to blame but himself since he spoiled his daughter and just kind of let her run amok. Uh, Corey Lannis is hopeful that the whole thing will discourage uh, Sejanus from running away. And he also gets a package from Pluribus. Uh, it's the guitar strings uh, Lucy Gray requested and it's free of charge. Again, Pluribus Bell deserves the world. I love this man. So overall, he's in a much better mood now. He's even excited on Tuesday because it's hash day, which just a couple weeks ago, he didn't give two shits about. But that doesn't last uh, uh, last because um, when he goes down to the clinic to get more uh, powder for his rash, rash um, he sees who was brought in. Uh-oh, it's Bruce, covered in blood, nearly dead, but still alive. Um, he didn't make it out. Uh... Did he manage to hide the weapons? Are they still in 12 and they can can they be discovered at any moment? Uh, would he rat Sejanus and Corio out? Um, well, lucky for them, Spruce dies of his wounds um, during the night. But the murder weapons with Coriolanus, uh, his uh, fingerprints and DNA are still out there. And things take a turn for the worse. Sejanus is arrested. Okay, so Coriolanus puts on his best performance. Next surprise, he and their bunkmates go to confront the sergeant, saying there's no way Sejanus could be involved in the murder since, you know, he's with them the whole time. Joke's on them. Plus, you know, most of you are drunk, so your memory isn't very reliable. But the sergeant says that he's sure that Sejanus, uh, his arrest is about something else. 
And this is when Coriolanus starts to get really worried. He spends the next two days uh, trying to stay calm, figuring out what to do. Um, keeps expecting uh, Mr. Plinth to show up and fix everything. Tries to get a phone, but um, he has to put in six months before he's allowed to make a phone call, which is only twice a year then. So he quickly writes a note to Mrs. Plinth. Uh, but when he goes... But when he goes uh, to mail it, he's called to the auditorium for a meeting. And there the commander tells everyone that one of their own, Sejanus Plinth, is a traitor and will be hanged that afternoon. And this is always the part where I start screaming and crying while reading and I'm still in denial that what happens happened. So, just like the last one, uh, Coriolanus is instructed to attend the hanging and stand with... um, the squad flanking the tree and the crowd's pretty sizable at first uh Coriolanus is confused because surely Sejanus wouldn't inspire this size of a crowd to show up though jokes on him think of the fandom we would all show up for Sejanus like this um but then he realizes that most of them are there for Lil who's also being executed that day so I'm just gonna read the last page and then go take a break to cry Arlo an ex-soldier toughened by years in the mines, had managed a fairly restrained end, at least until he'd heard Lil in the crowd. But Sejanus and, and Lil, weak with terror, looked far younger than their years, and it only reinforced the impression that two innocent children were being dragged to the gallows. Lil, her shaking legs unable to bear her weight, was hauled forward by a pair of grim-faced peacekeepers who would probably be spending the following night trying to obliterate this memory with white liquor. As they passed him, Coriolanus locked eyes with Sejanus, and all he could see was the eight-year-old boy on the playground, the bag of gumdrops uh, clenched in his fist. Only this boy was much, much more frightened. Sejanus's lips formed his name, Corio, his face uh, contorted in pain, but whether it was a plea for help or an accusation of his betrayal, he couldn't tell. The peacekeepers uh, positioned the condemned side by side on the trap doors, Another tried to read aloud the list of charges over the streaks of the crowd, but all Coriolanus could catch was the word treason. He averted his eyes as the peacekeepers moved in with the nooses, and he found himself looking at Lucy Gray's stricken face. She stood near the front in an old gray dress, her hair hidden in a black scarf, tears running down her cheeks as she stared up at Sejanus. As the drumroll began, Coriolanus squeezed his eyes shut, wishing he could block out the sound as well, but he could not. And he heard it all, Sejanus's cry, the bang of the trap doors, and the Jabberjays picking up Sejanus's last words, screaming it over and over again, the dazzling sun. Ma, 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 ma. <laughs> yep. Okay, time for a break. Okay, we're here with another random recommendation. So this time I'm actually going to recommend a graphic novel, and specifically um, it's a graphic memoir called How to Be Ace by Rebecca Burgess. Um, So in the back it says, Growing up, Rebecca assumes sex is just a scary new thing they will grow into as they get older. But when they leave school, start working, and do grow up, they start to wonder why they don't want to have sex with other people. In this brave, hilarious, and empowering graphic memoir, we follow Rebecca as they navigate a culture obsessed with sex, from being bullied at school and trying to fit in with friends, to forcing themselves into relationships and experiencing anxiety and OCD, before coming to understand and embrace their asexual identity. So, yep, it's exactly what it it sounds like. Um, Rebecca wrote a graphic memoir all about her coming to terms with her asexuality and I really highly recommend it if either you are asexual you're questioning or you just want to learn more it's what it's pro- probably my favorite graphic memoir I've ever read one of my favorite reads from last year so yeah how to be ace by Rebecca Burgess and uh, let's get back to talking about ballad Okay, we're back, and I'm in emotional pain again. So, uh, Coriolanus is also not handling Sejanus' death very well, mostly because he's worried about what could happen to him. 
uh, convinced that any day now he'll be arrested for the murders and that Sejanus uh, might have given him up. But unlike you, Corio, Sejanus doesn't betray his friend, so fuck you, Corio. Um, he feels bad and then ki kind of justifies his actions. Coriolanus buried his face in his hands. He had killed Sejanus as surely if, as if he had um, bludgeoned him to death like uh, bo like Bobbin or gunned him down like Mayfair. He killed the person who considered him his brother. But even as the vileness of the act threatened to drown him, a tiny voice kept asking, What choice did you have? What choice? No choice. Sejanus had... Uh, had been bent on self-destruction, and Coriolanus had been swept along in his wake, only to be uh, deposited at the foot of the hanging tree himself. He tried to think rationally about it. Without him, Sejanus would have died in the arena, prey to the pack of tributes who had tried to kill him as they fled. Technically, Coriolanus had given him a few more weeks of life and a second chance, an opportunity to mend his ways, but he hadn't, couldn't didn't care to. He was what he was. Maybe the wilderness would have been best for him. Poor Sejanus. Poor, sensitive, foolish, dead Sejanus. So yeah, he's trying to convince himself it's not entirely his fault, being like, what choice did I have? Anyway, so he's spiraling, has a breakdown. Um, by the way, if there's anyone who who's like binge listening to this and is over 21 uh, take a shot every time i say something along the lines of coriolanus spirals because he does that a lot or i guess if you're of legal drinking age in your country uh, can you tell him from the united states um i think we're the only country that doesn't let the 18 year olds drink though correct me if i'm wrong um but it's like when you're 18 congrats you can vote you can be drafted for war but uh we draw the line at letting you have a glass of wine Anyway, yeah, so uh, Corio has a complete breakdown, and this is probably the most, like, uh, vulnerable we've ever seen him. Like, um, and, like, it's such a strong visual, because um, he, like, he's, like, has most of his clothes off. He's lying, lying down in his bunk. He's, like, you know, visually very vulnerable and obviously very emotionally vulnerable. He's crying. He's convinced that he's going to be dead any day now, and he hates the eye that when he's hanged, the Jabber Jays will copy his last words and the Mocking Jays will turn it into a song. And after breaking down, he pulls himself together and decides to face his death like a man and, you know, set his affairs in orders. So first he takes um, the remaining cash that had that uh, Sejanus had and mails it to Tigris, um, decides um, to give his orange scarf to Lucy Gray so she'll have something to remember him by. And eventually he's summoned to Commander Hoff's office and he's convinced that he's about to be arrested. Uh, but instead, Hoff uh, thanks Corio for his sacrifice. Um, Dr. Gold did get the Jabber Jay. So yeah, in the end, Sejanus was in fact betrayed by the person he trusted the most. And insert anguish screams here, but I can't actually scream right now because everyone else is asleep upstairs. <sighs> so, um... So they go off uh, because it's Hoff's birthday and he tells Corio to try and have fun. Um, then he and his squad uh, go to the hanging tree uh, to clear out the Mockingjays and the Jabberjays. And Corio has just a little too much fun shooting the Mockingjays. Um, I mean, they do say one of the telltale signs of a, of a psychopath is killing animals for fun. But anyway. Okay, so they all shower, they get dressed for the party, they eat a nice meal and gather in the gym because, what do you know, a band is performing. Wonder who it could be. <laughs> so, Coriolanus uh, gets uh, the scarf and the strings to give to Lucy Gray and stands in the back so he can slip away if he needs to. And Lucy Gray is wearing the rainbow dress, the same one that she wore in the arena. And I'm going to read this passage, um starting toward the bottom of page uh, 478 because it's one of I think the few genuinely like uh, sweet dare I say romantic ones in the book
Coriolanus drew in a sharp breath when Lucy Gray appeared in the rainbow dress from the arena. Most people would think it was for the commander's birthday, but he felt certain that it was for him. A way to communicate, to bridge the chasm that circumstances had dug between them. An overwhelming flush of love ran through him at her reminder that he was not alone in this tragedy. They were back in the arena, fighting for survival, just the two of them against the world. He felt a bittersweet pang at the thought of her watching him die, but gratitude that she would survive. He was the only... He was the only one left who could place her at the murders. She, had, she hadn't touched the weapons. Whatever happened to him, there was comfort in knowing she would live on for the both of them. For the first half hour, he didn't take his eyes off her as the covey ran through some of their regular numbers. Then the rest of the band cleared out, leaving her alone in the light. She settled in on a high stool and then, had he imagined it, patted the pocket of her dress as she had in the arena. It was her signal that she was thinking of him, that even if they were separated by space, they were together in time. Every nerve tingling, he listened intently as she began an unfamiliar song. So the song is, of course... So the song is, of course, um, Pure is the Driven Snow, covers linked in the show notes. A lot, of, a lot of songs I'm linking in the show notes this time around. So sorry, Allison, in editing. Um, I really do love this song, and it really um, touches Coriolanus, and he's glad that, you know, Lucy Gray will think he's a good person when he's gone. And I love this line on page um, 41 that comes right after the end of the song. It says, um, The Mention of Trust. Before need, before love, came trust, the thing she valued most, and he, Coriolanus Snow, was the one she trusted. I think this is one of the most popular lines in the whole book, and the whole scene is really sweet, and just for a moment I almost forget who the main character is and who he'll become. Just for a second, the book tricks me into kind of shipping them. Um, when she finishes the song, she goes backstage and the rest of the covey comes on and Maud Ivory starts singing. Um, so Coriolanus sneaks back to see her. They hug and she tells him you know, she's so sorry about Sejanus. She had been at the hanging. And Corio straight up lies and saying something like, well, I guess someone betrayed him. Thank you for reminding me, Corio, that you're a terrible person. But yeah, Lucy Gray thinks um, that Spruce betrayed Sejanus. Anyway, um, Lucy Gray also isn't doing very well. The mayor is stalking and harassing her because he's convinced that Lucy Gray killed Mayfair. I mean, he's wrong, but he's going in the right direction. He also tries to get the peacekeepers to arrest her. Um, all the peacekeepers uh, do to help Lucy Gray is to tell her to just avoid the mayor since, you know, the justice system is unhelpful. But it's hard to avoid the mayor since he's lit he literally sits outside her house now and is now threatening the rest of the covey. So with that line being crossed, uh, she decides that she needs to run away before the mayor finds a way to kill her. Uh, she's going to go north and has been setting some supplies aside. And just like that, Coriolanus decides he needs to go with her since um, his life is also in danger, like Curzo's. And he gives her the strings and the scarf and they plan to leave the next morning. Also, side note, um, Maud Ivory can be heard singing um, her Sunny Side of Life song while this is, whole thing is happening, so good timing on that one. Um, Lucy Gray goes back on stage and Coriolanus takes his place in the audience. And then he realizes he doesn't know where to meet her, so Lucy Gray answers the question by debuting The Hanging Tree, which of course has the lines, Are you coming to the tree? And I love that this is the last song we see performed in the book since, you know, it'll become such an important song later in the series. Uh, so the song's fully written now, and we have like a clear idea of what the song is about. And basically, the speaker of the song is Billy asking Lucy Gray to meet him up at the hanging tree to run away with him. You know, the tree where they witnessed Arlo's execution. And 
as the man who quote unquote murdered three and told his love Lil to run. So the first two stanzas of the song are dedicated to that event. And the last stanza is really chilling because it clearly is a reference to what happened in the shed uh, before he died. You know, Billy was going to make sure that if he was going to hang, then he would make sure Lucy Gray died with him as well. So yeah, Billy may be a charming guy, but he's ultimately a very bad dude and abusive. I mean, gaslights Lucy Gray, cheats on her, tries to get her killed. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the Covey performs a few more numbers and then they all go to bed. Coriolanus gets up early the next morning, eats breakfast, and is on his way um, to leave the base when he stopped. And just when he thinks he's about to be caught, uh, the chapter ends with the commander telling him that he's to leave for officer school the next morning. And once again, things are getting a bit more complicated and this will all end in disaster. I'm not ready. So... That's the end of the chapter, and we're at the end of another episode. Uh, next Again, next week, we're talking about chapter 30 and the epilogue. Again, I can't believe it. Um, I mean, because I'm so excited to get into the trilogy, but it, it'll be really sad because this will be... Because it'll be last time on this podcast, you know, I'm reading the book with Lucy Gray in it, but we get three books with PETA, so that helps. Um, and yeah, to keep, uh, stay on the lookout for the, my, like, wrap-up slash final thoughts slash theories episode for Ballad with my, with my special guest. Um, and please send in, like, any, like, thoughts or theories you have on the book. I would love, I'd love to read them and share them on the podcast. Um, and, and again, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, don't forget to follow, subscribe, so you know when I post new episodes especially when i do bonus episodes and don't forget to follow on instagram again bookish babbles underscore podcast and i hope you guys have a great day slash night i am gonna go drink a glass of wine now or something because i'm still an emotional wreck from having to relive sejanus's death and i will i will talk to you guys next time bye